the clamor of a great conference convenes to decide the fate of what is a shrimp amongst whales fighting over a small piece of territory. This is the representatives of Tsar Nicholas II of Russia and the Emperor of Japan. In 1896, the delegation would decide the fate of a small, relatively insignificant peninsula off the coast of North Asia. This is the history of Korea and the confluence that would create the Great Korean War of 1950-1953, which would split Korea from this moment in 1896 all the way to the modern day. Hello and welcome back to the Cleocast. This will be episode 11 over kind of the Korean War, but more so just the history of Korea from 1890 to about 1954, 1955. This is obviously going to be a pretty broad topic, so this will probably be a multi-part series. And I'm Marcy. And I'm Matt. And I think we're going to have to just get right into it today. I want to make a quick statement before we get started. We are uh, by no means experts in Asian history, but we feel like the topic of Asian history or any non-Western history is very neglected when it comes to actual information about it. So we're going to attempt to do our best to cover this, but this is about 70 years of a history of a country that really never had its opportunity to be a full entire country. So there's going to be some stuff we miss and some parts where we may get stuff wrong. We apologize in advance for that, and we do really encourage corrections and uh, whatever thoughts and comments you have on a topic like this. You can go ahead and email us or check us out in our ACAST. But we're going to go ahead and get into this very long story. Korea is a very old country. Coming from a place like the United States, it's only been around for about 300 years. Korea and most of that Asian area with China, Japan, are very ancient cultures and lands compared to most of Europe or the rest of the world. They have very long-standing tradition, a very long-standing history. A lot of Korean people can relate their family trees back many generations where here in America we can't. You know, it's just what boat we got off of or whatnot. The issue Korea has in the region it's in is it is surrounded by a lot of very large neighbors, such as China or, say, the Mongolian Empire in the 1200s or, later in our story, Japan. It's a relatively small country for the area it's in, but yet it's managed to exist all these years. Granted, it's been taken over a few times, uh, including in our story, but... It still exists, and a lot of that is because of its individual identity that's managed to persist, even through occupation. And this brings us to in 1890, where the large Russian Empire, which has expanded eastwards throughout the past two to three hundred years, is on the Pacific, and they make a treaty with the Japanese in 1896 to effectively agree to split the peninsula of Korea between them, the northern half along the 38th parallel and up going to the Russians and the southern half going to the Japanese. This was designed to limit tensions between the two if they had a broad line that they could agree upon that would be the area where it was split, then it would 
hopefully lead to less disagreements. You know, they both agreed. And so the Japanese got Seoul, the capital of the uh, kingdom, because at this time they still have a king, a ruler, Korea does, and a lot of the farmland that goes in the south, while the Russians got the north, which was very mountainous and not as much as in the future, but more kind of industrialized because the area does not lend itself as well to agricultural production as the south does. So Korea is more of a pawn in a great imperial game between both Western powers like Russia and new rising Eastern powers like the Empire of Japan. So these powers, particularly Russia and Japan, would go to war in the Russo-Japanese War, which would see some of the what would be devastating 20th century warfare where we saw, you know, the age of cavalry begin to die, but this is where, you know, Tsar Nicholas II was encouraged to be the savior of the Western world and defeat the Asian menace by his cousin, Kaiser Wilhelm II. You might recognize those names, you might not, but this is the time where these Western European monarchs were basically collaborating against China to gobble it up, and there's a new imperial power also gobbling up land in China, and that is Japan. So eventually they would come to a head in the Russo-Japanese War, which wasn't even over Korea at all. It was over a port called Port Arthur. The Russians had Vladivostok, which was a uh, port that would freeze over, and like for most of Russian history, they wanted a warm water port, and one in the burgeoning new uh, imperial battleground of China, in which uh, the failing state there and the new warlords popping up could establish, you know, a good European presence and basically box out the original uh, Chinese rulers and create basically money-making centers, Port Arthur was an essential area to establish both a you know massive trade center, but also put a warm water fleet for the Pacific area, which is something that the Russians were in desperate need of. The issue is, is that that is near Manchuria, which will also be called Manchuto, which would be a province of the Imperial Japanese Empire coming on. So they were running massive rail projects out there and developing a colony just like everyone else who wasn't a Chinese power taking over lands for their own personal profit. But this is when, you know, these two powers go to war. They are very close to each other, and they also have a border along what is where the Korean border kind of stands today. And war broke out, and battles along the Korean Peninsula and also the Yalu River would be a massive staple of the Russo-Japanese War. For a quick summary, the Russians lost. And this is the beginning of the very slow death throes of the Russian Empire and Tsar Nicholas II. It was embarrassing for a Western power to lose to an Asian power. And this is uh, in the very, very racist ideas of 1904. That's just not allowed. Not allowed at all. So the Japanese now have control of almost the entire peninsula of Korea and part of China. 
including Port Arthur, which was fought over drastically, and the Japanese have a major win. So when World War I breaks out, there would be the death of an empire and the rising of a new sun out in the east. Even though it was an occupied power for this interlude, the Korean people never really forgot their past cultural achievements and what their families had done. A new wave of academics and thinkers revived Korean nationalism into what it would become. Apologies for the very anglicized name, but Syngman Rhee, who was born on March 26, 1876, was one of the first people, or at least one of the most famous people, to kind of coalesce this idea of Korean nationalism into a movement. You see, they were still being occupied by the Japanese forces at the time when he started to really make his moves. But nevertheless, he converted to Christianity and started a real kind of Korean independence movement, which was not very popular with the Japanese occupiers. So he was forced to flee to the United States. In the United States, he continued his academic pursuits. He went to Harvard and he met a man who was in charge of Princeton, who was the president of Princeton in 1904, one Woodrow Wilson. The two got along famously. Sigmund Rhee would go over to his house. They were friends. He would meet his family. But all the time, all Rhee could think of was his nation and how it was suffering under Japanese occupation. He just wanted Korea to be independent, and he was going to do his darndest to make it so. Because you see, throughout all of its history, Korea, as a peninsula on the border of China and then Russia, had never really been in charge of their own fate. They had always existed as kind of a buffer state or a pawn to be traded between large empires, but never to be their own independent country. And even in the moments of its independence, it was always fleeting. But finally, there was a Korean nationalist movement that was devoted to getting their independence from the Japanese and the Russians and to create one free Korea. They just had to figure out how. All the while, while he's in the United States, he's continuously making pleas to the president, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, all these guys in power, just trying to get some form of admission from the United States to support Korea. See, the United States had the Philippines at the time. They had interests in Asia. It's just the United States didn't really want to commit to anything, see? Because if they committed to Korea as independence, then the Philippines might look at that and be like, hey, why not us too, you know? We're actually under your thumb. You have the power to let us go. So the United States was very wishy-washy, which all just went along to aggravate Rhee as he continued to petition and form movements with Korean Americans living in the United States. Rhee was a part of a special club of these new Asian Democrat movement independent idea leaders. Rhee was a part of uh, this large group which featured a future freedom fighter against the French and against the Japanese and against the French again and against the United States, Ho Chi Minh 
who is currently studying in France at the time that Vrie is also pleading with the Americans here in the early 1900s. There's also Sun Yat-sen, the establisher of the Chinese Republic, that would eventually uh, blossom into uh, the, some would say dictatorship, some would say long-term leadership of Chiang Kai-shek in the Chinese Republic, which would eventually be exiled to the island of Taiwan, uh, where there is also uh, by a man who is also getting active in this time named uh, Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong was a communist fighter and a communist idealist, but these ideas of not having a large oppressing monarchy like in the idea of the Chinese uh, empires with the emperor of China or being taken over by European powers which were now uh, thousands of miles away and kept their thumb down on them. Like the Americans in the Philippines or the British and the French or the Russians or uh, now growing the Japanese who also had their own emperor and were far less democratic than these uh, new Asian idealists who were pleading for the freedom of their countries or fighting for the freedom of their countries were. And that is where we are with all of these people, but we're focusing mainly on re and the history of Korea. But let's go back to where we are. It's the early 1900s. So Rhee is in the United States. He's gone to Harvard. He's furthering his education. He's a pretty young man. He's only in his 20s. And he's kind of made friends with a man named Woodrow Wilson, who at that time was president of Princeton. They hung out a lot. They were fairly good friends. Rhee would go over to his house. Rhee was still, though, an expat living in America, and he thought all the time of his country and what he could do for them. He never forgot, and that was his life's mission, see, was to free Korea. But Teddy Roosevelt, the president at this time, had other ideas. See, the United States was very much a burgeoning colonial power, you know. They had the Philippines, and there was this new Japanese empire that had beaten the Russians, and we didn't have that big of a military in the United States. We knew we couldn't hold the Philippines, so Secretary of War William Howard Taft decided, with the uh, advice and consent of the president, of course, to make a treaty with the Japanese respecting their territorial ambitions and effectively legalizing their occupation of Korea and Manchuria in exchange for the Japanese respecting the Philippines as an American protectorate. Because you see, Japan had taken over Korea and Manchuria in this time because they were a burgeoning imperial power who had gotten free of colonization. They had managed to avoid it by first being isolationists, and then once they had been forcibly reopened to the world by the Americans in the 1800s, they effectively rapidly industrialized and were able to defeat a European nation, which, you know, the racism of the times thought was impossible because, I mean, they were fighting mostly tribal peoples who were not on the same level of industrialization as they were, say, the British or the French or the Russians. So it was a pretty big deal for the Japanese to be able to compete with, you know, these European colonizers. And so the Americans signed a treaty. 
And Japan had taken over Korea and Manchuria mostly as a ploy to get more resources to fuel their empire because while they were able to avoid colonization as a small-ish island nation, roughly the length of California and probably about similar in size, they didn't have that many resources. They had a pretty large population, but industrialization requires a lot of raw material to input so they took over this massive portion of the eastern bit of china right above korea using the korean peninsula as kind of a gateway to that because korea was a largely agricultural state and was not industrialized and was you know mostly just a bunch of farmers so they didn't really have the resources to stand up to it. So the Japanese were basically getting the exact same deal that the Europeans had gotten, where you go in and invade a weaker neighbor that isn't really able to resist as effectively. And the Japanese thought of Korea as not necessarily a nation, but as just a dagger pointing at the heart of China. If they were ever going to be able to take their gigantic neighbor to the west in China... Korea was what the Japanese Empire thought was the way to do it. You go in through the peninsula, you get a foothold on the mainland, and then from there you can move in, such as Manchuria. So this treaty they made with the Americans effectively legalized their seizure, and this incensedry. I mean, Korea effectively was no longer a nation. The United States withdrew its delegation along with other European nations, and it was now just the chosen province of the Empire of Japan. Chosen being the name, probably my mispronunciation, but it was now just a province. Same with Manchuria. It was now the Manchunko province. They weren't nations anymore in the eyes of the world. So, Re is running into an issue that is ran into by a lot of people advocating for their independence of their countries, which is, uh, although you're friends with people in power in that country, uh, their interests seem to come first all the time. And he hit the same wall that uh, a man named Ho Chi Minh was also hitting around the same time, trying to advocate for the freedom and release of Vietnam. These are very similar situations, but it's more of a burn. Like, these are your friends, and they would rather not listen to you and sell out your ideas and a potential future ally in order to establish control of another colony, even though the United States has advertised itself as an anti-colonial power, and Woodrow Wilson talked about the determination of nations— this doesn't this doesn't make sense. This is exactly what your friend was apparently against and this was exactly what, you know, it, it it it's mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling to the person, especially Ray, of what could happen. But now Korea is under Japanese occupation and it was brutal. Japan did not treat the Koreans well. They were second-class citizens, and uh, as history would go on, the Japanese, I'm sorry, Japanese nationalists, but it did happen, would use Korean women along with Chinese women as comfort, basically sex slaves, to travel around with Japanese officers, and these people who's now taken over provinces 
both Chinese and and Korean ethnically, would be used as sex slaves, as real slaves, beaten, tortured, mistreated beyond any measure that our modern minds can even grasp. And this is just... It is really bad for the people of Korea. And something has to be done. And there has to be a fight against these new occupiers. Now we've been talking about Re, but also the new era of these uh, freedom fighters and people advocating for the independence of their countries across Asia. I mentioned a man named Mao Zedong. But there was also a man who was uh, interested in communism in Korea. His name was Kim Il-sung, and he was not going to take the occupation of Korea laying down. He began to organize a guerrilla freedom fighting organization that would hit Japanese officials and the Japanese government, Japanese military, all over Korea. And he quickly became uh, what was basically a folk hero for the people of Korea. The downtrodden, second-class citizens of the new burgeoning Japanese empire had the man Kim Il-sung to be their stand-in for like who, what they should be. He was someone who was fighting for all Koreans and had this Robin Hood vibe to him. He would steal from them and deliver great wealth, uh, whether from, from to the impoverished Koreans, whether it was rice, whether it was luxury goods stolen from uh, Japanese government officials, or, you know, rifles that they could then join Kim Il-sung on the fight against the Japanese. This was very similar to a man who uh, would steal uh, the thunder and the limelight of Kim Il-sung. His name was Mao Zedong. He was in China doing practically the same thing as uh, China has been erupting into civil war and virtual warring states battling each other between what was the Chinese Republic headed by Chiang Kai-shek, whatever warlords were developing in different regions, whatever Japanese puppets were established, Mao Zedong was fighting for them and he was hiding out in the mountains just like Kim Il-sung and was ready to take the fight to the occupiers and the oppressors. This is where two critical people of the early to mid-20th century stand, fighting occupiers in the mountains. And this is the drastic contrast to Ree, even though he is uh, battered and broken, is still in exile in America. And... As we know through history, there is also a man named uh, Ho Chi Minh fighting for the advocation and freedom of Vietnam in France. So there's lots of different avenues that these uh, new freedom fighters are taking, but Ri is uh, taking the more diplomatic stance. Uh, but we now have what would be his antithesis and uh, future enemy, Kim Il-sung, battling in the mountains against the Chinese for the liberation of the Korean people. But if you took Kim Il-sung and Ri and put them in the same room at this time, they would be uh, very similar in what they want and what they desire for a free and independent Korea. Now, what's all this we're talking about? Communist freedom fighters? Where's that coming from? Well, see, this little thing happened in the interlude period right now between where we are 
and where we were. It's an event called, uh, at the time, the Great War, but to us, World War One. You see, all the big colonizer nations fought each other in Europe, and Japan got involved a little bit, and they took up some islands. That's pretty much all the fighting that happened in uh, Asia, but an important thing happened to Russia. The Tsarist regime collapsed and gave way to a civil war, which gave way to a democratic government, which gave way to a civil war, which gave way to a communist government. But we're not going to get into that because this is not a podcast about World War One. What's important, though, is that the Soviet Union, which took over the previous Tsarist Imperial Russian Empire, you know, were the heralds of this new communist revolution. They were the beacon of, you know, freeing the workers around the world, and they inspired these communist freedom fighters in Asia. Because, you know, who else was a better example of people living under an oppressive regime than Koreans in Korea or you know, the Vietnamese and French Indochina, it really kind of spoke to them, the message. And, you know, the kind of generalist movement for democracy in Korea, the main guy advocating for that was in the United States. He wasn't even in Korea. That's where these movements kind of sprung up from in the 20s. It wasn't necessarily out of a vacuum, but less out of a kind of how the world was going and now there's this Soviet Union that was able to sponsor these revolutionary movements across the world and that they did the conventional idea is that in the interwar period I'm doing air quotes on interwar but this is a audio media so you can't see that but in the interwar period in European history you can see the growth of Nazi Germany or you can see the growth or uh, ever-shifting powers in the Soviet Union as Lenin died and the Stalin came to power. But that wasn't really the case, because that was very cold. Uh, it was very cold in Europe up until the start of World War II. What wasn't cold is this interwar period in Asia, which was just a series of wars. Japan was on a massive war of conquest throughout Asia, and from the 20s onwards, uh, the Japanese military was invading all different parts of Asia. China was still falling apart at the seams and was being barely held together by whether a uh, generalissimo, Chiang Kai-shek, or a uh, communist revolutionary, Mao Zedong. But there is conflict, and the Japanese empire is growing. They wanted to create a, uh Asian co-prosperity sphere which they believed they should be the head of because they were the most superior group out of all of the Asian countries, but they were going to force out the imperialists and the Japanese government and Japanese people in general seemed to really have a pretty aggressive hatred towards communism. So Asia is a massive burning fire of just death, famine, disease, and war destroying itself. But the thing that was happening is that the Japanese Imperial Army and Navy were gaining years upon years of important experience that when war in the European conventional mind breaks out in 1939, they're honestly the better and probably the 
best currently fighting military going on uh, in the world. They have decades of experience, and uh, they are ready to take on and consume the rest of Asia and can force out the rest of these European and Western powers. Whether it's through sparring uh, with border wars against the Soviet Union, who wouldn't actually declare war, would just have sporadic bits of conflict with the Japanese Empire uh, up until uh, Harry Truman encourages them to join the war in 1945. And uh, they want to gobble up the parts of uh, these European and Western empires that still exist, whether it's gobbling up Indochina and taking it from the French, forcing the British out of Singapore and Hong Kong, and really putting the hurt on the British Navy, which was one of their massive prides, and also taking on the Americans, whether it is a sneak attack in Pearl Harbor or gobbling up the Philippines, leading to the Bataan Death March, and uh, MacArthur, Will in Douglas MacArthur, who is an important figure that I'll go into in just a second, proclaiming that he will return to the Philippines. Now let's go ahead and take a quick pivot to Douglas MacArthur, a person who will be very important in later episodes. Douglas MacArthur was the head of the United States Army and uh, was... Uh, currently in the Philippines, monitoring troops and also, uh, you know, leading the army of the Philippines. He was a uh, long, long-term veteran, a veteran of World War One under uh, Black Jack Pershing, and a uh, very important American military figure that some even thought that he would uh, overthrow Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1930s to become a military dictatorship like, you know, the rest of the world was doing, and push the United States closer to fascism. Whereas, uh, obviously, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt would go more uh, of a uh, liberal, democratic, uh, kind of socialist country. Uh, but there was a lot of... There was multiple ways that we go, but Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in our opinion, went uh, a pretty solid way. Uh, and uh, Douglas Park was also famous for... Uh, beating up the bonus marchers, which was not really important to the history of Korea, but I just want to mention that uh, that was bad. Uh, Douglas MacArthur shouldn't have done that. So he is a crucial part of this story later on. I just need to mention him now. Douglas MacArthur. We have a list of players now. We have Chiang Kai-shek. We have Mao Zedong. We have Kim Il-sung, we have Rhee, Sigmund Rhee, even though the pronunciation of his name is uh, debated in English, but we've been just calling him Rhee for standard purposes. We have Douglas MacArthur, and we are entering into the start of World War II. World War II was almost the breaking point for the Koreans. I mean, here they were being pawns of some imperialist empire and then being used as foot soldiers, effectively like pawns on a chessboard, being used as cannon fodder to attack the Chinese. See, the Koreans, as a people, 
didn't really have any interest in invading China. They didn't really have any interest in furthering Japanese imperial, you know, ambition. But it wasn't really up to them because once again, they were, you know, just a client state. They didn't have the autonomy that they had always wanted. Both Ri and Kim were unable to affect anything at this point as Japan continued to invade China and continued to make headway and the casualties continued to mount, a lot of the Japanese imperial military was formed from Korean uh, conscripts. In fact, a lot of the Korean guys who died were just, you know, kids not really having any choice in the matter. In fact, they couldn't even vote or choose or do anything from their government because the Japanese... You know, it was a client state, and they also had some weird supremacist vibe going on where they effectively anybody who was not a full blood Japanese person was seen as lesser than, right? It was this kind of ethos they had built up in their quest to industrialize. And I'm trying to kind of skirt around the kind of racist connotations you get from generalizing people like this, but. Their actions kind of speak louder than any words and descriptions, and the actions of the Japanese military in their invasion of China kind of prove better than I could ever in terms of description. Just the murder of civilians, the wanton aggression towards kids and women and non-combatants. Even if they weren't necessarily supremacists, they certainly acted like they were. And Korea wasn't exactly getting away unharmed here either. As I said, they were getting conscripted. Their boys were getting sent to be killed. I mean, this invasion of China, Japan had a population of around 70 million people in this time period. Korea had a population of probably around 5 to 10 million. China had a population of over 200 million people. I mean, try to think, if you conscripted every single Japanese citizen into the military and tried to occupy, you'd still be outnumbered by the Chinese people almost two to one. It's ridiculous to even think of this as feasible. It was pretty much always doomed to fail, but the Japanese war machine wouldn't take no for an answer. They continued their invasion, and things just kept getting worse and worse and more brutal and more brutal, all the while, Japan is taking all these resources and production and you know agricultural goods from Korea and Manchuria and all these occupied places. They were just stripping them bare to fuel this invasion into China that was just like you know dumping buckets of water into the ocean. You're never going to make an impact. It's never going to be enough. Eventually, American efforts in the Pacific and British, I'll, I'll include them and the French too, uh, managed to break the Imperial Japanese Navy. There were slow island-hopping campaigns to take over what the Japanese had managed to seize around December 7th of 1941 in their initial attacks. The Philippines were retaken. Okinawa, Iwo Jima were invaded. The islands of Guadalcanal. Uh, there was fighting in Borneo. This was all over the period of about four to five years. But eventually... The Americans were able to launch B-29 super fortresses from China and then indeed from Okinawa to bomb the Japanese mainland. 
this was to be a prelude for invasion. It was a firebombing campaign designed to basically neutralize Japanese resistance so they could invade the islands proper because that was how it was going to be in American eyes. But eventually they were able to deploy nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then that paired with the Russian invasion of Manchuria into Korea effectively ended the Second World War as the emperor forced a peace treaty between the American and Japanese forces. Now that Russian invasion into Manchuria and Korea is key because that panicked the Americans. You know, Russia had taken over Eastern Europe and they effectively were going to be able to hold that. That was gone. But so far, the Soviets had been at peace with Japan. So America was kind of seeing Japan and, you know, the East Asian area as kind of a bulwark against communism because they were no friends to communists. But with the Russian invasion, they began to panic. They realized, the Americans did, oh, shoot, we might have a split Japan just the same way. So that's why they uh, kind of brought the Russians to the negotiating table and surprisingly managed to make them agree to that same 38th parallel line that was used back in 1896 between the Russian Empire and Japanese. So the Russian forces passed the line, pulled back, and that's where the boundary marker was set in 1945 of the peace deal. See, the they had the... Uh, Yalta conference between FDR, Churchill, and Roosevelt to split Europe, but they'd never had a similar conference for Asia. America kind of viewed it as their domain where they were just going to be able to push their will. So with the Soviets suddenly becoming a major player, there had been no prearranged peace treaties or deals that they had agreed to. So this was kind of an ad hoc venture. And America thought it was a good deal at the time because, you know, you had Seoul, the capital of Korea, on the uh, southern bit where the Americans would occupy, but all of the industrialization was in the north, as we mentioned a bit earlier. Because of the mountainous terrain, they weren't really able to be agricultural like the south was. So you had all the industrial might of Korea in the north with the Soviet-occupied zone and all the agricultural goods in the south. So if the Soviets in the north and uh, the western allies more of the United States in the South, uh, the establishment of a uh, Korean government overall was agreed upon, but uh, no one really knew how to go about that because without the unifying factor of being allies in a war, uh, the political differences between the Soviet Union and the United States were uh, growing drastically and quickly. Um, so the Soviet Union decided that the best leadership option for the entire Korea was the freedom fighter Kim Il-sung. Kim Il-sung stayed in Korea, he fought the Japanese, and he helped the Soviets when they were entering into Korea. He was a uh, hardline nationalist who uh, was also you know, willing to work in this new socialist world and was into the idea of being a communist as well. And he stayed in Korea. He fought. He was there. And he seems like a good leader to bring Korea into a bright, independent future. The Soviets really had no major interest in maintaining a puppet government in Korea because uh, Kim Il-sung was politically aligned and uh, really they had no point to stay and be a military occupation. So most of the equipment that uh, the Soviet Union had was just dumped 
and given to uh, Kim Il-sung as just a gift, and the Soviet Union left. Now, the South was under uh, a American military occupation under Douglas MacArthur. Douglas MacArthur was basically in control of almost all of the Asian provinces that were uh, under U.S. occupation, and he was focusing uh, a good amount on Korea. But uh, a factor outside of Korea uh, was also growing as uh, Mao Zedong became to be a massive, massive thorn in the side of the people of the Republic of China. And the Republic of China was losing their civil war drastically. And then eventually in 1949, Mao Zedong won the civil war, exiling the Republic of uh, China to the island of Taiwan and basically established the People's Republic of China and establishing a communist regime there. That is an ideal that Kim Il-sung can look up to uh, in order to be, you know, oh, hey, Asian countries can have an independent communist government, and it seems like socialism is on the rise. So the United States uh, saw that this is a problem, but Kim Il-sung saw this as an opportunity. So in 1949, uh, an election was called to establish a uh, government in South Korea. With a massive 90% election turnout, even though uh, the people in the North, uh, especially hardline communists, were trying to stop it, uh, they elected Sigmund Rhee uh, to be the president of uh, the Republic of Korea uh, down in the south in Seoul, and he was brought back from his 30-plus year exile to be the president of South Korea. But... The United States uh, left the Republic of Korea basically alone with minimal military or military assets or military support. No tanks, just small arms. And uh, this is an opportunity that a uh, Kim Il-sung saw. But that is a story for next time. Thank you so much for listening to Cleocast. My name is Matt. And I am RC. We thank you so much for your support, and uh, if you want to go ahead and check us out on Twitter, at uh, Cleo History, or you can email us. Uh, you can also go to our Acast if you uh, are interested, and we'll go ahead and see you next week. Thank you. Bye.